Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Focus will be verses 5 through 11. We cannot uh, read these verses or understand these verses without first remembering uh, really the crux of the first several verses, really the whole book, being about the supremacy of Jesus in everything and over everything. Uh, And in that light, it narrows down in the first few verses of chapter 3 to remind us that our life is Christ. We have died to self and we are alive to Jesus Christ. Uh, We are reminded that we are to set our minds on those things that are above. And what that means, literally, according to the study we engaged in last week, is that it has to do with where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. What is the priority of Christ as he sits at the right hand of God the Father, that will then inform us as to where our minds ought to be set. And it has to do with the building of his eternal kingdom. It has to do with all nations becoming servants of Christ. And so our minds must be focused now on eternal priorities, the priorities of Jesus right now. So now verses 5 through 11, it says very forthrightly what has to happen As we seek Christ's priorities, what must occur is the putting off of the old and putting on of the new through Christ. Hear God's word, Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, bearing Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Let us pray. Father, thank you for uh, just the forthrightness of your word. We have been encouraged. We, we recognize and confess our life is hidden with you in Christ. At the same time, Lord, we war against our, our very members. We struggle on a regular basis with sin. Lord, teach us and guide us and free us from this struggle, Lord. We recognize, confess it's a process, but Lord, we want to be engaged in this process. We want to see Christ's glory come as you sanctify us. And we pray that uh, as a result of our study today, that even in the smallest areas of our lives, that we would begin to see the supremacy of Christ over them. In Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the truly great scenes in all the Bible is when Jesus raises a man who was dead for four days, Lazarus. Now, I think of it as one of the truly great scenes, probably for uh, one of the more grotesque aspects of the story that you don't really read about, but you just do the math and figure out. I think that this serves as a great illustration for us as we become born again in the process we go through. I'm not suggesting that's the hidden meaning in John's account about Lazarus' rising, but just rather that the idea of being regenerated or born again implies that there is death before it or a lack of life. And the picture of Lazarus is so vivid to me, and I want you to think of it as I paint it for a moment, and then we will apply that picture as we consider what it means to put off the old and put on the new. 
You remember, Jesus comes to the grave site. He has been uh, delayed providentially. He comes there. He talks to Martha and says, have them remove uh, the stone or the cover off of the tomb. And what is her response? Lord, he's been dead for four days. Leave the cover on, essentially. He stinks. In fact, I love what it says in the King James. He stinketh. And he would have. It would have been hideous. I mean, four days in that climate would not have been pretty. I want you to just consider for a moment, and I'll spare you most of the details, but without preparation or embalming, fluid from the lungs would ooze out of the mouth and nostrils. The unpleasant sight is added to by, a forensic scientist says, terrible smells. Gases such as hydrogen sulfide, the rotten egg smell, uh, would, uh, and other gases would be released. Why do I mention this? I mention this because the text of Scripture says that Jesus raised Lazarus. Not that he cleaned up his rotten, smelling grave clothes. Imagine Lazarus rising from the dead, only to be wrapped in a long, nasty, foul, smelly, putrid, reeking, gooey grave cloth. And what does Jesus say? Unbind him. Now, I'm filling in the details but, or the, that aren't there, but you can imagine, go run and unbind him. And Lazarus just can't get out of it himself because his hands are probably at his side. But it just, it, the thing reeked of death. And though he was born again, uh, his outer garments were still rotten. And he had to get out of them. I think that's a correct picture of what happens when we're born again. Not that we have one man inside of us and another, and we're trying to kill the old man, as you hear in some theologies. But rather, we're born again. We're alive. We're alive to Christ. But we have grave clothes on that have to be picked off. They have to be taken off. And that is a process that lasts your whole life on earth. Taking off the grave clothes. Now, further, if you consider this picture, Lazarus struggling to peel off his stinking grave clothes so he can completely enjoy his new life. He didn't just run around with no clothes on after that. In order to live life, he put on new clothes. Uh, after all, if you didn't, what would you eventually put back on? I suppose the old clothes again if you had nothing else. So you not only put off the old, you have to put on the new. That's part of the struggle, the change that we undergo as we are born again. As people who are dead to self and alive to Christ, we are engaged in a challenging struggle to take off those old polluted grave clothes. We're engaged in a challenging struggle to put away sin and put on Christ-likeness. That's, I believe, the essence of the text here before us. Keep it in context now. It's not saying that this is something you could do of your own strength. Remember that up to this point, it's clearly God's work of salvation in our life to unite us with Christ, to give us new life. We have not earned new life. We have not done something to get new life. We're not putting off so that God gives us new life. He gives us new life so that we can begin taking off those outer garments. So it's in the context of our being born again, regenerated, justified before God, secure in Christ. It's with that security, brothers and sisters, children of God, you can then, before the Father, start to remove these garments. And as ugly a process as that is, and the struggle it is, because you don't want to sometimes take it off, he still loves you. You're secure in him. It's your loving father wanting you to take these things off that are hurting you. It's not a matter of gaining or earning his love by putting off these things, but fully realizing and experiencing the love he has for you objectively in Christ. I believe if you look at the text, verses 5 through 11, there are two categories of sins that need to be put off Two different commands that have to do with how we deal with these sins. Now, I've seen different scholars, authors, and uh, commentators uh, put it in different ways. I'll just say simply, I think the first uh, couple verses, verses 5 through 7, has to do with putting to death sensual sin. Uh, sexual sin, but it's, it's more than just that. It's sensuality itself. 
uh, that can bind us. And it says, put it to death. It doesn't say, uh, uh, just deal with it or uh, just pray about it. It says, put it to death because of how aggressive and powerful it is in our lives. Uh, but then it continues on in uh, verses uh, that follow it, 8 and 9. You have uh, putting, to, putting away uh, what we might call uh, relational sins. Now, don't get me wrong. All sins relational. You don't sin in a vacuum. If you sin in the areas of sensuality, it affects someone. I just mean that uh, community life, uh, you might say community sin, uh, that usually circles around anger or malice or wrath, the words that are used here. Uh, both are community killers. Both are witness killers. And if you think about sexual sin or sensual sin, and you think about anger sins, uh, you see how that no one escapes. So you could be in a church that uh, seems to be free of sensuality and sexual sin, but everybody hates each other, or they're so legalistic that they just, they just work over each other, and there's anger in that midst. Whereas you can have a church that is not angry with one another because they don't take a stand on anything, and so therefore they're given over to sensuality. So by covering these two categories, no one, no body of believers, no individual escapes. And so he says, we've got to put off the old and put on the new. Let's look at verses 5 through 7 first. Putting to death sensual sin. Verse 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And remember, earthly is a reference back to the first four verses that talks about not having our minds on that which is of earth, meaning that is not eternally significant or not in line with the eternal priorities of Christ. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Then a litany of things. Sexual immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them. Uh, the Puritans had a, a word for this putting to death process. It's called mortification. And you can picture a mortician uh, mortifying, uh, putting to death the flesh. And there's whole subjects and whole lessons taught on this topic. Not preached much today, but nevertheless entirely relevant mortification the putting to death of sin in ourselves as as believers uh, the word means to kill put to death it is a violent word uh, it comes from necreo which is uh, the word for, for that from which we derive necrosis and it talks about going after these things in a violent manner not putting them to sleep peacefully but put them to death kill them murder them suffocate them uh, kill them, all the words you can think of that would describe killing, we apply this to these particular things in our lives. Uh, it tells us right off the bat that this list that we're going to look at has such a violent effect upon us. It has such a, a damaging effect upon us, and it, is, it can never be negotiated with. Uh, it's, it's a terrorist in that sense. You're not going to sit down and have negotiations that will not cost you greatly with these things. And so by using this language, we are clearly uh, given... Uh, this picture of how desperate our condition is if we're given over to these things. So put them to death. You're going to have to kill them because they're going to rise up to try to kill you or own you. So if you don't kill them, they'll have a foothold that will never leave. Let's look at the different designations. I find this an amazing passage as I do any portion where Paul gives these litanies, uh, these lists, because the words have some uh, synonymous relationship, but for the most part, they stand on their own distinctively in the Greek especially. They're, they are very distinct words with nuanced meanings. Uh, first of all, sexual immorality. Uh, literally, uh, fornication or pornea, the word they're used. Uh, our word pornography comes from uh, this root word for sexual immorality. It focuses on the behavior uh, of any and every form of illicit sexual activity. That is, 
any sexual activity outside of God's boundary for marriage. No one escapes some level of temptation in this area. No one. Uh, but it can, we can be given over to it if we, are not rec- uh, if we do not recognize this. The Bible is nowhere shy about sexuality because of, of the realization of its idolatrous nature in a person's being that can drive them and take them away from fellowship, right fellowship with God. God made man male and female and designed the male and female to please one another within the sacred covenant and permanent relationship of marriage. The problem comes with all the extramarital uh, temptation and uh, and focus and, and even justification or rationalization even in our day. It's one of God's most beautiful aspects of human creation, given some of the deepest ugliness when applied wrongly. So killing sexual immorality means that it is something that will always threaten uh, to be in unbalanced or to be thwarted or to be uh, skewed if we are not uh, recognizing just this. You know, let's be clear, Satan did not invent sex and romance. This is a gift from God. Uh, but Satan, our flesh and the world, know how to pervert it. And then it changes, and then it becomes something uh, totally other than what God has intended. And if you don't act to kill it, it will eventually kill you. It will at least kill your witness. Uh, but it will kill joy in you. It will kill intimacy with God because it will kill intimacy between you and other people. And it really makes sense that Paul would list this first because if this is not killed first, uh, you will have a very difficult time uh, with your fellowship with God because your fellowship with other people and your view of other people will be so ungodly that you'll have a struggle to see and be burdened for the things that are above the eternal purposes of Christ, which are for everyone to worship God, not each other or self or our own lusts. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality it tops the list. And all of them are somewhat related to this and you can think in the scriptures of how uh, this has played out you don't have to think long sodom and gomorrah reuben's incest with his own father's wife david's bringing great shame and reproach on israel for his tryst with bathsheba romans 1 describes the awful downward slide into moral uh, degradation uh, the moral degradation of one another's bodies as it shows uh, this downward progress Uh, but impurity picks up on this general theme then in the text says Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity. Uh, These are the thoughts, essentially, that lead up to the behavior of fornication. God calls these things impurity. They're fornicating thoughts. Uh, Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. It includes suggestive and sensual flirting and talking and so forth. It's hard to draw particular lines other than to tell you, you know what it is. And someone doesn't have to explain it, describe you know whether it's impure. It's true that over time, repeated exposure to impurity and the, the repeated going over of impurity in your mind does numb conviction. But in the end, in the silence of your own heart, ultimately, especially the person of God with the Holy Spirit, Dwelling them knows when it's impure. Knows when it's impure. I always tell men, uh, in particular, as they learn to discipline their minds by the help of the Holy Spirit, uh, if you're wondering if it's a pure, impure thought, what would you think if it was thunk about your daughter? You'll know whether it's impure immediately, won't you? It's not all. The list goes on, and they build upon one another. Sexual immorality, impurity, then passion. Uh, Kill passion. 
And it doesn't mean passion for the good, you know, to be passionate about things. It's talking still in this family of sin, I believe. And it gets behind the unclean thoughts to the ungodly lust that drives them, uh, driven by self-centered lust or passion. Passion here speaks of being dominated by illicit desires and most likely, particularly, sexual desires, whether it is uh, hetero, homo, or any other kind of uh, out of the bounds of marriage uh, desire. Uh, we have to be clear that feeding such lust in even the most subtle ways will only cause that spiral to continue in our lives. Take control. A passion has to do with an overmastery of something where your passion or your feelings, your desire so drive you. And that leads to the, the next point. Kill evil desire. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Behind the fornication and unclean thoughts and uncontrolled passion are desires that are contrary to God's will. This is very relevant to our day. And I think we have to hear it, acknowledge it, even in our own lives as believers, before we can really engage with people in the world. What has happened in the world and what you see being discussed is that if someone feels a certain way, that somehow has to make it legitimate. Well, I feel for this person, so therefore can't be wrong. Uh, we have to recognize as believers that we are warped arrows. Uh, people in general warped arrows. No matter What I mean by that is the arrow's bent, and no matter how you shoot that arrow at the target, you will never zero in your bow uh, with that warped arrow. And so our feelings and our desires are warped at the base level because we are depraved. And if we recognize that, then we have to see that some outside force has to straighten us to make us think straight. And we will struggle against it because we're bent. And so what I'm saying is that just because you think or feel something does not in any way mean that it is legitimate. Uh, you can go through a tough time in your marriage and be attracted to another person, and you genuinely feel this way because something is somehow made up in a relationship that is not your marriage. I'm telling you, that's an evil desire. Just because it's a feeling doesn't mean that it's a legitimate feeling. It's an evil desire. Uh, recognize that we cannot trust our feelings. An evil desire is really the starting point in understanding the way we feel. And then God's word applied to that begins to straighten. So we need an outside force to straighten a warped arrow. You've literally got to put it on a machine and straighten it. An outside force has to be applied to it. It will never straighten itself. And that's true for us as well. We have to have an outside force straighten us, affect our desires and our feelings. And just because someone is attracted to someone does not mean this is who God wants that person to be with. That's really the argument you had today. Have you ever really listened to it? It's essentially, I feel this way, and I've felt this way my whole life. Don't analyze any shaping influence in their life up to that point and say, because I feel this way, I get my own category. Imagine where that will go. If I feel and fill in the blank of what you feel like, and if enough people agree they feel that way too, that needs to get another minority status, doesn't it? I mean, think of it, where it leads. It, it is not at all rational or logical to follow that. We have to have an outside uh, revelation that gives us proposed truth about this matter because we're warped. And it's true, you may have all sorts of feelings, and I think people do, we all do, that are wrong. They're evil desires, and we have to know that, recognize that, be held accountable to that. Kill evil desire. Starts by even knowing that it's existing. And then finally it says in this list of things, covetousness, which is idolatry. I love it when the word of God defines itself right there in the moment, because covetousness can have a wide meaning, but essentially what it means is the worship of something you don't have. Uh, the idea that if you have it, you will be made complete. Agreed is really what is being spoken of here. Being driven by your inner evil desire to want more and more and never be satisfied ultimately. You live for more of what you want. It could be money, power, 
here could be inner discontent with God's plan for you, whatever the case may be, or the relationship God has given you, the marital relationship or the lack of a marital relationship, whatever it is, it's discontent with what God has given you in the desire to seek something out after. All these things have to be put to death, brothers and sisters. They cannot be just prayed about. They cannot just be uh, worked upon. They cannot be something you're dealing with. They have to be put to death, and that's a violent act that requires assistance. When Lazarus was taking off his grave clothes, Jesus said, unbind him, meaning he could not do it on his own. And I think that's parallel. You will not be able to in these cases, especially if you're given over at any level of this, to do it on your own. You will need outside accountability. You will need people who love you interacting in your life to help you keep you from these things. There's just no other way. You will not beat this on your own if you're given to it. If you're not given over to it, don't be foolish to think, well, I've got this far. I won't fall to these things now. Many a person has said that same thing and have ended up, especially with the growing wiles of our day, the growing opportunities to fall in these areas. Don't be foolish enough to think these things. And let's not lose what it says here in verse 6 and 7. I think they provide motivations for killing these things in our lives. First, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. They quantify the sin that, that God is ultimately going to make right in judgment. On the count of these, the wrath of God is coming. That should motivate us to recognize the very thing that God hates is sin. And we as his children of all people should not uh, be quantified by these things. And so his very wrath that is coming should be motivation enough, but also this very real fact of our identity, that we ought to be who we have been bought to be, redeemed to be. Verse 7, in these you too once walked. You too, he's talking to believers here. When you were living in them, and for them, uh, many of them, this was literal. They literally came out of this life and turned. For others, it's just the fact of your being redeemed, whether it be in the womb or when you're five or whenever it was that God worked the work of regeneration. We all, by our connection to Adam, were walking in these things, and therefore, we're still peeling the grave clothes off, even if we've never known a day where we didn't trust Christ. There's still the process of tearing off that clothes. In fact, it can be harder often for one who is always... Uh, always remembers knowing Christ because they don't always recognize that they too have the remnants of Adam's sin about them. We too walked. And while I cannot say as I read this that I remember uh, living a life where I did not acknowledge God, I have no trouble understanding how one can be given over to this. No trouble whatsoever. And so, my motivation or one of the motivations comes in a twofold manner here. God's wrath is coming upon these things. I've been bought with a price. I used to walk in this, but now I'm alive in Christ. And so I'm motivated now to seek out something different. The text says, put it to death. Again, it's not just mulling it over or just talking with friends about it or having a support group so you can all feel better about your sin. That's not what this is about. This is put it to death before it kills you and kills others and kills the name of Christ before the earth. Before the earth. Think of the words that are synonymous with killing something, putting to death, suffocate it, smother it, choke it, starve it, beat it down, slay it, slaughter it, butcher, eradicate it. That's the violent nature that needs to be applied to this. I think suffocation and smothering are, and choking off are probably the two, uh, are the best picture for what it is that we have to do in regards to these kinds of sensual sins. Uh, do not feed these lusts is the issue. It says this in other places in Scripture. Do not put yourself in a spot where those things are fed. And that will mean radical 
open accountability. It does no good for everybody to come to church and act like everyone's holy and not deal with these issues. Now, it's not something I'm going to speak about in particular vivid terms right from the pulpit, but I encourage you, and in the means that you have, and the smaller the groups they are, the better that you have open, especially men, I think, of all, of all folks, need to really have accountability structures where they could talk openly and honestly about these things. They have to have this. Now, I don't let women off the hook because it's a, just a different version of temptation for them. And so in like manner, you have to have these accountability structures. That's part of one of the great dynamics of the church is to have these open, transparent relationships that are real about what happens. Think of all the scandals you can imagine that have happened in evangelicalism in the years, uh, over the years. How many of them may have been able to have been thwarted if there had been open and honest dialogue with people about the struggles they have where a pastor or an elder or a person in the church could feel like they could actually say openly to someone, I'm struggling with this, and then have accountability, loving account accountability brought to bear, rather than, what? You do what? You feel this? You feel, and none of the gospel then is applied to that person's life. See, the gospel keeps applying, not just the, the moment you become a believer, but every time sin rears its head, which is often in our lives, the gospel again comes afresh to it and again gives the ability to walk in a different direction. But it doesn't stop just with sensual sin. He continues in verses 8 and 9, putting away what I will term as relational or community sin, you might say, all of which, again, we can relate with. But now, verse 8, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Talking about your position now is in Christ as a new person alive in him. These things are positionally and before God put away. Now act like it. And where this happens most practically is in a community with others. And so what are the things that wreck community? Without question, they are here listed, starting with anger, wrath, malice, slander. These are uh, relationship busters. These are, uh, if you go off on people, if you just as a mode of operation get angry with and are wrathful towards, mal uh, malicious towards, slandering others, uh, you will have no real friend on earth, and the community that allows you to continue this will become ravaged by that kind of poison. And so, very clearly, Paul gives this direction for those of us uh, called to him by through Christ's work. First of all, anger. What is anger? Anger is a selfish heart reaction that is upset when we don't get what we want ultimately or we get uh, what we don't want. It can go from a slight irritation to a smoldering resentment and long-lasting bitterness. It can consume and devour and kill you and others around you. It leads to bitterness, which is a life that is wrathful. That's the second point here. Mention wrath. Wrath is really explosive anger. Anger expressed often with words, but sometimes with physical violence. It's the unleashing of anger that is uh, held up in our hearts. Malice, you can see how they build upon one another. Malice is really essentially what one author says, ritual murder. That's what malice is. It's the inner resentment that wishes evil to come to others. It's a cursing of others in our hearts. It's hateful, hating one another. I can't stand that person. That's malice that comes up from anger and can have wrath mixed up in it, could lead to further wrath. It's ritual murder. It's hating someone in your heart. Slander. Slander is anger. And hatred let loose through our words. It's attacking other people's character. Often it's falsehood about others. 
But the issue is that it is trying to attack others so that you may raise your own status or lower their status. That's slander. Obscene talk. Abusive speech out of your mouth. Speech that is really just out of control. Obscene in that sense. It may be dirty, shameful speech. That's true. Maybe cursing or swearing. That's possible. But it's speech that is out of control and destroys other people. The Amplified Version of the Bible says, foul-mouthed abuse and shameful utterances. One that just talks and spews hatred and violence against people created in the image of God. That's obscene talk. Lying. Lying to one another. It's probably the most popular sin, most sin of all sins. People lie all the time. And you say, I'm not a liar. I don't lie like that. All right. We try to make people think that we're more than we are. We deny when we're really guilty. Uh, we may not outright change the truth, but we just paint ourselves in such a way that we're bearing false witness about who we are. Lying. All these things. Think of the list, and that could be heavy on us. Putting it off. It, it, just the effort, uh, just the, the striving it takes to see these things subdued in our lives. But notice what we have. It's not just a matter of putting off but it's in the process of putting off, it's then putting on. This is, I think, where we come into the most trouble. It's not so hard for a time, just like a diet, to stop doing this or stop doing that. But what happens if you don't replace it with something positive or something that fulfills the longing or desire that you have that caused you to go overboard in the first place? What if you don't fill that gap? It comes back. What does it come back like? With a vengeance, doesn't it? Worse than it was before. So you can't just put off these things that we've just listed. You've got to begin to put on a new way of thinking. Mind renewal, as it says in Scripture in Romans 12 and in other places. It's a matter of our minds now being renewed as we put on our new self. Look at verses 10 and 11. And have put on the new self. So it's implying that as you're taking off, you're putting on. Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So it's renewed in knowledge. As you come to know more and more truth, you'll be transformed into the image of of its creator. Now you bear the image of God, but the image of God is skewed in us, and it now has the ability to be restored because of Christ. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barthian, Sc a barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Let me be clear on what this means. It can be taken out of context and skewed for sure. The listing of a people or classes here is simply trying to say that your earthly way of looking and judging people is not binding on God, that all sorts of people and all sorts of sects and divisions of humanity can be renewed by Christ. In fact, uh, look at the, the diversity here. A Greek is a privileged elite person in those days. If you were Greek, that was, uh, you were kind of the, the uppity, the privileged uh, elite person. But the Jew, uh, the old culture Jew, the one that has all this background, even a, a certain sense of pride going with that circumcised the circumcised of course the jews were mocked by their enemies they too can be renewed by christ uh the uncircumcised who are mocked by the jews they too can be uh re be reached by jesus so you see the two opposites of what society this is not binding on god he can reach them all uh, a barbarian basically anyone who didn't speak greek or wasn't of greek culture was a barbarian a scythian in that case was the worst of all barbarians because they were probably most likely from north asia they were seen as as savages Slaves, those who do not own themselves, are owned by someone else, or free, the person is a citizen. All these categories, Christ is able to reach. He's supreme over all of them, and he is in all of them, meaning members of those classes. Not that he is in every person, 
that he is in members of all these classes. And we should not look upon people based on their background, their economics, their family, their ethnicity, and think that Christ could not be about the work of renewal in their lives as well. And how is it that we renew? Well, it's mind renewal. Have put on a new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Let's just do it this simply. Take that whole list, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying, and put on the opposite. Put on what is Christ. Instead of anger, wrath, and malice, put on love and kindness towards one another. Serve one another. If you have that sense about someone, that's the person. Let me tell you God's will for your life. The person you're struggling with, being angry with, malicious towards, or wrathful towards, that's the person God wants you to serve, I promise you. That's the person. So that changes everything about the way we put on. Now, we take off and then we put on. Taking off does not mean ignoring. Does it mean getting away from them? It means going after the sin of your own heart by doing the very thing Christ would do. So you go and put on love and kindness towards one another. It's not good enough to say, I'm not going to be angry. I won't be wrathful. What does it usually mean? I'm not going to go near that person. How is that putting off? Uh, it's putting out of sight. So put on love and kindness. That's mind renewal, as Christ would do. Slander. Instead of slandering, when you're tempted to speak about someone, hold up. And if you can't speak an encouraging word to start, if you can't speak to bless that person, don't say anything, and then watch how you are given opportunity by God in that setting to start speaking blessings about that person. Speak blessings rather than slander. Obscene talk. Meditate on God's beauties. Meditate on that which is pure and holy and just and good. And in time, that will, that will color your whole way of seeing the world and you will catch yourself in ways that you've never caught yourself before as you put on the praise of his holiness and the value of his people. How obscene talk will turn into as you put on praise. It will turn. It will change. It will run. Lying. Put on truth speaking. Put on speaking the truth instead. That may mean, brothers and sisters, right now as you sit, hopefully convicted by the Spirit as I am, to go back and make right some things you said that were not true. You know you can't put off the other until you deal with it and put on truth until you go deal with it. It's a process of renewal, Christ-centered renewal. I would just say these two things in, in closing. The Christ-centered mind renewal involves two things. First of all, it's a renewal that is a process, a continual process until you get to heaven. You'll be picking off the grave clothes until glory. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, uh, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Ephesians, similarly, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's a constant process of putting off and putting on never ends secondly you are being renewed through the growing knowledge of christ this cannot happen apart from christ let's not lose this context as we focus on these few verses remember colossians 3 remember the new testament remember the bible is about christ and so christ is ultimately the application sometimes well-meaning people could get into the discipline of getting rid of this stuff and forgetting that it's christ who gets rid of this stuff not them not their efforts, it's Christ. And so it's Christ-centered mind renewal. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 that we just studied 
If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things in the earth. That's where Christ is. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Is Christ. We learn of Christ through his word. We learn of Christ through his sacraments. We learn of Christ through his people. We learn of Christ through fellowship with him. It goes on day after day, week after week, year after year. You never fully arrive. It means you spend time with him, praying to him, praying, uh, to him meditating on him, pondering how to apply his truth to your life. It's growing in his grace. It's understanding what he did on the cross for you anew each day. All that he intends for us, all that he is for us is our God. Lord, prophet, priest, king, all these things, it's a constant, continual, refreshing renewal of knowing Jesus. Brothers and sisters, tear off those old, rankled, festering, decaying, decomposing grave clothes that we have on us. Every time we give into sin, it's like taking a piece of that, that malodorous cloth and putting it back on ourselves. Let's not any longer do this. It's one thing to put off your pet sins for a time, but keeping them off requires putting something different on. Let's pray, and I want to use the words that Augustine prayed uh, relating to this very subject. Let's pray. O Lord, what evil have we not done? Or if there is evil that we have not done, what evil is there that we have not spoken or thought of? Is there any that we have not spoken? What evil is there that we have not thought to do? But you, O Lord, are good. You are merciful. You saw how deep we were sunk in death, and it was your power that drained dry the well of corruption in the depths of your hearts. All that you have asked of us is to deny our own wills and accept yours. Forgive us for every failure to do so, and help us to follow you in every way and always. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.